Moshe, Mark, Morris, thank you for joining me on my podcast, Speak to a Lawyer. You're a great friend, a great lawyer, a mentor. And for those who don't know, you've been a real help in me and my, for me and my practice. Uh, I've pretty much uh, emulated you in many ways uh, with my real estate practice, uh, specifically residential real estate. Uh, you've taught me so much. Uh, the past year or so since we've known each other. I look forward to a continued relationship with you and I look forward to using this opportunity to delve into a little bit of your background and who you are and, and what makes you tick. So if you want, we can uh, start right there, uh, Moshe. That's with too the... kind, Abby. That's too kind. <laughs> well, so I'm much. just getting started. I, I like to say these intro marks are abbreviated. I could go even further, but we'll, we'll give you the mic for now and, and ask the intro question. What uh, prompted you to study law? What prompted me to study law? I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to go back that far. So um, law was something uh, that I rather thought I would enjoy. I was a bit lost actually when I, um, when I was doing my undergrad. I did my undergrad in political science and history. And uh, it turns out that there weren't that many people that needed my advice on either politics or history. And uh, truthfully, um, law school was something that ran in my family um, and it was suggested to me it would be a good idea and I know this sounds this sounds less than stellar because at this point in your life you're supposed to say I was driven in the following ways but the truth is I don't think I derived my drive at that time I think I was kind of following a, a course um, and I ended up going into law school and um, if I'm to be very frank disliking it immensely. Not, not the actual school experience. I had a great time in school, uh, but the practice of law was not something that I very much enjoyed while in law school. Um, and uh, it wasn't actually until I started practicing that I actually started to really fall for the subject and really enjoy it tremendously. Amazing. So take us through as you graduated, what was your first job in law? I know we've spoken about this personally, but I think your story needs to be heard by all. So let's go through the beginning a little bit. I'm happy to, but I'll, I'll preface it by saying that anyone who tells you a story that is predicated upon success is probably not telling you the real story. Because the people who I've encountered in life who have the best stories have failure and not just minor failure, but significant failure. Um, and indeed, my, my career was replete with that as well. Um, and so rather than go into the highlights and successes, because if students are watching this, you know, it's, it's probably helpful to understand that, hey, you can be successful at the end if you go through the hardships. I will tell you, I will tell you about the career warts and all, and then we can go from there. I graduated law school and I was involved in politics. So despite what I said about not finding a political position, it turns out I was able to do so after law school. I helped a politician run his campaign who became the Attorney General of Ontario. He and I were friends and he asked me to be his policy advisor down at Queen's Park, uh, which indeed I was. Uh, I was his policy advisor until he switched portfolios to a different ministry. Um, and at that time I thought, okay, I'm a lawyer with law degree under my belt and I've been the Attorney General's policy advisor and absolutely everyone will want this bevy of experience but no one did um, because truthfully I didn't have any practice under my belt and you know it's not really that useful if you aren't actually making policy. What's more because of my law school experience which I didn't enjoy all that much I, I decided that perhaps I would try other things. So I did go into uh, my family's law firm for about three or four months while I was trying to figure things out. And we were successful in actually securing a piece of land as part of, as payment for some litigation that uh, we engaged in. And at that point, I decided that I would be a builder um, because we had this piece of land, so why not build? And I built alongside uh, certain family members. And that building project alone, probably in Ontario in the past 30 years, was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was unsuccessful. And, and the interesting part was not that it was unsuccessful. It was unsuccessful um, for a variety of reasons that I could probably bring up. Uh, but the important part of the lack of success was the way I dealt with it. Um, really upon realizing that the project wasn't a financial success, 
I went through a lot of internal consternation and, and, and kind of started approaching this and started saying, what went wrong? Where did this failure take place? What was missing? And why are other people able to do this and not myself? And that internal retrospection, which by the way has happened many times through subsequent failures in my career and successes, prompted me to say, I'm missing certain skill sets. And I then um, shortly thereafter uh, applied to become, to my MBA, uh, which I did down at the Rotman School. Uh, and I went down to Rotman and I was very purposeful when I was at, it's a bit different when you, when you've worked for a while. There's a couple of years where I worked intervening that I missed out, but I, it was about two or three years after my law degree that I, I actually went back to my MBA. And it's very purposeful when you go back to education after you've been out in the real world as opposed to just going through. Partially because, of course, you're a bit older, a bit more mature, and, you, you, and that's great. But also because when people feed you information and you have very little experience, it's very hard to figure out where in the knowledge tree you should actually be putting that piece of information that they're trying to give you. Whereas when you've had a business failure, such as I had, down at uh, in this building project, um, then you are able to contextualize what it is that people are saying and put that into a larger picture. Uh, and it's a picture for me that allowed me to fill in a lot of my gaps. So when people were teaching me financial analysis or accounting or anything else, I was able to say, aha, uh -huh, that financial analysis would have come in very useful in the building project had I been able to do the following forward future planning. Or, you know, with accounting, I would have been able to say, all right, this is where I failed in the project. This is where this comes in. And because of that, every bit of information that came to me from my MBA, not every bit, but the parts that were relevant to my failures, um, really were contextualized and absorbed. Um, I also became a bit humble in my MBA um, and due to business failures from before. And as a result, when I graduated my MBA, I decided that I would... Uh, try to find an organization that would be able to support my learning and growth because I realized I still had. And I, I realized real estate was of interest to me um, through the building projects, through the litigation from before. And so um, I made an application uh, to uh, a gentleman named Mitch Goldhar who runs Smart Centers. And I said, who was one of my professors down at Roman, I said, Mitch, can you can you let me into your organization, Smart Centers? And uh, he established a whole program actually for a bunch of MBA students where they were able to do rotational experience through the entire land development uh, production facility that he has, because he builds those retail centers. Mm -hmm. um, and although I would like at this point to say that I was a success then as well, truth is that was another failure. Uh, and it was not a failure born of lack of trying. I was trying to be successful. I didn't have the skill sets uh, within that organization to be successful. Um, and the skill sets that I didn't have, and I, in retrospect, I've realized them are dealing with large corporations and organizations, being a fluid part and connective tissue that is so valuable to those larger entities. My wife, my wife and, um, works in one of those types of organizations and I see that all the time and I see how well she works with others. I didn't have that ability. And so shortly thereafter, I was fired from my first job. We're still friends. I still like Mitch. Mitch still likes me. And, you know, we're, we, it didn't end badly, but it certainly wasn't a very good business fit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had two lovely failures under my belt with, uh, I had one or two small businesses that were successful, but really two big, large business failures. And here I was. Um, you know, approaching my 30s and uh, not much to show for it except, uh, except failure. You know, I took a course when I was in my MBA, which is interesting, and, and I know we have a lot to talk about, but I'll just quickly go into it. It was actually by a professor who's now fa fairly famous. And his name is Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, um, he was, it was just us and 12 other people in a circle around Jordan Peterson for a whole year. It was a wonderful course. Uh, and he was teaching a course at the time called Maps of Meaning. And what Maps of Meaning was about was it was basically an analysis of religious experience. Uh, and he said, I don't care if you're religious or if you believe in God or anything else. He's like, but what is true about religions is that their stories passed from generation to generation, often before writing. And for that to be case, I'm going to work on the assumption that something meaningful is being imparted in these stories, even if they're just stories. 
he said, so let's take a look at what all these stories say. And the stories and the interconnective tissue that he was able to bring out of the multitude of stories that make up the world's religions was fascinating. But the big story from a Western perspective is that of fallen redemption, is that of the phoenix into the ashes, is that of um, expulsion from the Garden of Eden and, and redemption, is that of Jesus Christ. And that, you know, like we could go into every single sort of uh, story, but they all have uh, the exact same motif, which is someone falls and then there's the struggle to redeem. And it's through the redemption that that person becomes a full and active human being. And I kind of see my career that way. So the falls were very obvious and I've, I've discussed them. And coming out of that, you know, like a crucible hardened by experience, um, you know, and coming out of the fire, I said, okay, time to kind of shape up and let's get this going. I applied for and I became a real estate broker. Um, and rather than just start approaching real estate from the perspective of, thank you very much, I'm going to sell a washroom in the sky, and no, no harm, no foul. People do very well with that, and I, I'm not meaning to say that that's in any way hard, easy to do. But I decided, look, I understand the importance of branding now. Thank you, my MBA. I understand the importance of making sure that we have stable income streams and that I'm on top of my business. Thank you very much for previous failure. I'm going to go. And I started up a company called Slatewood Retail Advisors. And Slatewood Retail Advisors chose to focus. Um, so, so I said, okay, I'm a lawyer, I'm a real estate broker, what can I do? And so I started marketing myself as Slatewood Retail Advisors with two other people in the company. Um, and Slatewood was designed around food courts of all things. And what we did was we went, we approached big players like the Eden Center or Yorkdale or a whole, there's a whole bunch of food courts that I can mention. And we basically said, look, you're about, food was a very big issue when Slatewood was starting up because food was seen as the way of competing against a nascent Amazon as it was starting out. Um, and uh, I, turned to, uh, I turned to Oxford, I turned to Cadillac Fairview and some others, and I said, look, uh, your food courts, you can make them as nice as you like. You can put cutlery in there or anything else, but what, you are still an A&W and a McDonald's and God knows what, and it's going to be the exact same as every other food court in the world. Slatewood is about bringing regional diversity to your food courts. And shockingly, they bought that pitch and they started giving me locations within these places. And so Big Smoke Burger, as an example, which you probably know now, and, 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 and Urban Herbivore, and, and, and I, I, I could go into any number of names. Um, but effectively, these were small operations, and I brought them, and I said, look, this is the regional diversity of Toronto's food operations. Let's get them in. And to those operators, I said, look, in addition to getting you space, let me help you operationalize. Let me help you build your businesses. Let me help you market your businesses. I didn't know the first thing about it, but I did know that they needed that. And I did know that I had what I felt was the skills to bring that to their attention. And I started genuinely helping many of these organizations with their branding, with their marketing, with their operationalization. And then soon law became a factor because of course, under the Arthur Wichester Act, you need to franchise. Um, and while I wasn't really operating as a franchise lawyer, directing people through the franchise process was something that I became intimately familiar with. And I developed a good deal of success and it was great. And I was branding and operationalizing food and then eventually clothing and then professional services. And, you know, it started expanding into other areas like getting people into Walmarts and, 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 and winners and God knows what. Um, the story, I know this is very long winded, but still, this is the truth. I mean, so we're enjoying it so far. From, from there, um, one day, one of my colleagues who I remained very close with, still am very close with, Lena Koch, approached me and said, and this was, to her credit, um, a, a remarkable idea. She said, listen, you brand, you operationalize these things. Why don't you brand and operationalize your law firm? Lena was with me down at Mitch's shop. Um, and of course, Mitch's primary um, person or primary tenant was Walmart. He was the person who brought Walmart to Canada. Um, and so it was very natural for us to both turn our attention and say, well, okay, let's try to pitch a law firm to Walmart. And indeed we did. And we at that point had a successful law firm and we had a successful practice in Slatewood, which, which, which had credibility in the space and was doing good business and good numbers. 
Um, and so we said, look, we have this law firm that's been helping Slatewood operate and doing some pithy little residential deals here or there and everything else. We want a brand, we want to operationalize it, and we want space. And Walmart, to its credit, said, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll do it with you. And so before I knew what happened, uh, from MJM Legal, which was the name of the firm, which is, by the way, you should never have a law firm named after yourself, ever, 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 ever. Uh, with respect to Abby, I know I know Charity Legal is is undergoing uh, you know some some discussions on that point as well. Right. But the reason you never want to do that, by the way, is because you can't sell MJM Legal because the chance of selling to someone who has the same initials as you is, is bubkus. What you want is you want is you want a brand that can be sold such that you can divorce yourself and relieve yourself of your daily responsibilities without your clients truly. Realizing now that's a very difficult thing to do because you're still providing professional services at its core, but it's much easier to do with a branded operation. So we brand rebranded uh, as we have for all of our food services and everything else, MJM Legal into uh, Access Law, and Access Law became one of the largest. I think it is the largest presently uh, consumer-based law firm in Ontario, and we opened up 14 locations uh, across uh, the GTA in Walmart locations. Um, and I sold my interest in Access Law in 2018. Um, and so both Slatewood and MJM were a success, or and Access Law were a success. Uh, I then went into another business, um, Delivery Pod, and Delivery Pod was making uh, packages uh, for uh, package storage devices for doors, and that failed. Uh, I had a failure due to actually a business dispute. Um, not due to production. Uh, we actually managed to produce. It was actually a beautiful product. And it was a very difficult thing to produce, but uh, due to a business dispute, it failed. And so uh, requiring cash flow, I then went in again into the wonderful world of law uh, where I have had success. I opened up another firm, uh, which is called Legal Closing. But more importantly, I started taking the experience, and we can talk a bit about this afterwards, but I took the experience of my previous experiences and I said, all right, how do I build something bigger than myself? And to that end, I started up um, a lead generation idea, which was a Facebook site, which is now the largest Facebook site in Ontario for legal advice for realtors and lawyers, which now has 9,000 active members and provides legal education to the general public and the like. And the purpose behind that was to get my name out there from a business perspective, from my business perspective, get my name out there and make sure that people know of uh, of me as a real estate lawyer. And indeed, that had some success. And I also started up another site called Legal Review. Um, and Legal Review is just an idea that really it, it's it's growing, but it's growing slowly. We haven't yet hit the big time with it, but it is the idea that people require status reviews and new build reviews. And so I have a team of lawyers that answer um, status reviews and new build reviews and everything else as they come in. People pay 50 bucks and lawyers then get on it and review these things uh, in the hopes of actually securing the file for themselves and carrying it through to completion. And I have a lot of uh, hope for legal review. It is growing slowly. Um, I have to put the fire under it and that's currently where my business attentions lie. And that is as plain and as good as a descriptor as I can give of my career to date. Really fantastic and inspirational career, um, also because you've had failures and you learned from them. But just hearing you speak makes me understand and appreciate how ill-equipped lawyers are for the real world, so to speak. You come out of law school and you don't know marketing and you don't know the business and the financials and so much so that you had to go back to do an MBA. So, I mean, I'll, there's a few different directions we can go, but I'll, I'll throw out there that you're going to, uh, if your plate isn't full enough, you're going to be a professor now at, at Ryerson University and, and teach the next generation of uh, lawyers, real estate lawyers. Um, you know, first of all, how do you fit more on your plate in addition to that? But, but uh, deeper than that, perhaps, is, you know, lawyers lack that basic foundational knowledge in marketing and uh, finances and you know I've learned so much from you about those two areas based on your experiences as well so what what could we do as you know let's say new graduates that uh, need to learn more do you suggest that people go back and do an MBA or you know also, also being a sole practitioner which we both are requires uh, marketing and finances you need to be a jack of all trades so how do you bridge that gap 
Yeah, those are excellent questions. So I am teaching down at Ryerson. I'm about halfway through my course presently. I'm teaching about 110 people advanced property law at the present time. Loving it. Um, and hopefully they're loving it as well. Um, I really enjoy the three hours a week that, you know, we put in and it's, it's great. Learning a lot too, by the way. Um, ongoing learning is part of this. Mm -hmm. I think your question is an astute one. Um, and it's particularly relevant to lawyers um, such as myself. Uh, if I'm to be blunt, and I'm not sure what the policy is on swearing on this podcast, but I was, a bit, of a, I was a bit of an arrogant jackass uh, while going through my legal career. My failures, I think, again, failures happen to all of us, but I think our, my failures were more substantive and longer than they needed to be by virtue of the idea that I had trouble collaborating with others. It's just a failure that I had. Um, I recognize it. I think I've gotten better over the years, particularly as I started running Access and we had about 80, 80 staff and I had to. But um, the truth is um, there is a huge value in mentorship and in people who can take you under their wing and show you the ropes um, you know, even though I don't know that he would be able to identify me in a, in a, in a lineup at this point, it's been so many years, and, and, and quite frankly, given that we were never all that close to begin with, but I kind of consider my time down at Smart Centers to be a mentorship. I was absorbing like a sponge everything that was going on there. I was taking in how people were talking about real estate, how they were, how they were um, functionally talking about business and I had a whole bunch of people who were able to show me the ropes and because they kind of put me on the right track and because I was suddenly able to kind of divert into the lane even if I wasn't successful in that lane but at least I knew where the lane went I was able to shave years off my own growth experience the MBA same thing right like if you think about it I had reality beaten into me such that when the MBA kind of opened up and said, hey, let me teach you this, it was, it was done within the context of I'm ready to learn now. And, and mentorship is really exactly that. Mentorship is I am ready to teach you and save you the hassle of going down too far into the crucible. You're going to have to go through your hell, but it doesn't need to be abject hell all the time for many years. Um, one of the things I tell young students, one of the things I tell young lawyers is to reach out to people. Many people reach out to me as well and say, hey, can you give me a helping hand? I'm a young lawyer. I need this direction. And sure, sometimes you're brushed off, but that's the worst that happens is that you're brushed off. Nothing bad comes of the experience. And more often than not, those people who have been through the crucible and understand how this works try to pay it forward. They pay it forward either to satiate their own ego and thinking that they're good people, um, or they pay it forward out of a genuine desire to assist professions and, and because they want to, you know, when you've, when you've assembled enough information in your head and you've gotten clarity on enough points, uh, it, it's, it's sad to think that, you know, you're gonna go to the grave with that and not be able to impart that or translate that into something larger. Um, and, and so for whatever the personal reason that inspires people, mentorship is something that people are actively ready to give. And it just short circuits so much of the, of the, of the hardship that one faces while starting up. And you're right with lawyers, it's particularly problematic because so many lawyers, I'm not saying everyone, I'm not trying to make a general statement, but there is a strain of lawyer. I included myself in this strain. That, not, that, that are not necessarily open or as open as they should be to assistance, who believe I can do this just by sheer perseverance of will. And, and so my advice to those people who are starting out is be open to this, be humble, be humble, and appreciate the fact that you know, you're not God's gift to law and you won't be for 10 years or 15 years, except the helping hand that so many of us are ready to extend to those people who are starting out. Absolutely. And really internalize the lessons that are being brought forth. It's not just about how to do X, it's more about why you're doing X and understanding preemptively why there is a need to keep X 
in mind when you're doing why. Like there's there's a whole bunch of information that can be imparted on a daily basis. So that would be my recommendation. Mm -hmm. a absolutely. And uh, again, you've been instrumental. Me and my practice, we've spoken about a host of things from uh, marketing to making the practice more efficient and uh, making the client experience more enjoyable and, you know, beginning to end substantive issues. So there's very different kinds of lawyers. You could be in-house at Access Law like you started. You could work at a big firm. But our type of breed, we're sole practitioners and, uh, you know, we're responsible for A to Z, the whole thing. Can you comment on the skills and the call it a toolkit toolbox of a sole practitioner. What is required to be a successful yes. sole practitioner? Yeah, um, I'll tell you what the really the one skill that you need to have that lawyers, along with everyone else, are not blessed with. It's something you have to figure out. You will be fine. Don't get me wrong. You'll go through hell in your first couple of years, but you will be fine so long as the files keep rolling in. The big skill you need at the beginning of your career is lead conversion. Leads and lead conversion. It's all well and good. You're gonna get out there. You're gonna say one day, let's say you graduate law school and you just decide to put out a shingle. You are gonna go ahead and you're gonna, first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna work on a brand. That's what most people do when they, when they just, why? Because it's something to do, you know you need it. And then you're gonna work on a website. Why? Because you're 25 years old or 26 years old and you know how to work on websites. So you're gonna put your work into that. You're gonna get an email, you're gonna get a domain, you're going to be set up and you're gonna talk and you're gonna find something really, really cool to put down as your brand tagline. And it's gonna look so nice and fresh. And then you're gonna get an office and you're gonna get a computer and you're gonna be set up and you're gonna get everything set up for real estate and wills and everything else. And then you're going to finally one day sit down and everything's going to be ready and your website's going to be up and everything else. And you're going to say, what now? Because the only thing that matters is the only thing you haven't been able to do, which is ensure a constant stream of files. You need to ask yourself what type of business you're setting up for. If you're setting up a sole practitionership that is designed around killing one or two files a year, that's very different than the vast majority of ways that lawyers, particularly in the sole practitioner space, operate. Because the way we operate is we eat what we kill on a transactional basis, and those transactions are small and usually involve maybe a couple of days, sometimes one day, sometimes a week or so of work. If you're doing a will, it's a one-time or two-time meeting. If you're doing a real estate transaction, okay, you're looking at two or three weeks. But firstly, because it's largely commoditized, at least in perception from the general public, there's not much meat on that bone, even if you're able to charge a hefty sum per file. And as a result, the thing you need in order to survive is an ongoing source of files and leads. And that's the one thing that your fancy website and your domain and your nice marketing and everything else hasn't been able to create. And so part of the mentorship that I would strongly suggest people think about, even before they set up as a sole practitioner, is how am I going to drag in files? What am I going to do? How am I going to do this such that I can survive? You will screw those files up. And there's any number of questions as to how you're going to do your accounting on those files and how you're going to actually uh, repair whatever problems it is. And you're going to go through all the hell and tribulation of practicing law as a young lawyer and make your mistakes and everything else. But all of it is overcomable. So long as more files come in the door, the money keeps going, allowing you to grow and become better at what you do and refine what you do. There is a Japanese practice called Kaizen. K-A-I-Z-E-N. And the Kaizen approach was the one that was manufactured by Toyota. And it is, about, it is designed around the idea of continual improvement. Think about your career as a block of wood. This is the way, this is not mine, by the way. Someone said this to me once and it stuck with me. The block of wood is literally a block. And one day it will be a beautiful sculpture. You have one piece of sandpaper. 
and you just have to keep sanding and sanding and sanding and sanding and sanding and eventually the form will become apparent and eventually the form will become beautiful and eventually the form will become worth a good deal of money and other people will admire it and say i want it but gosh darn does that take work and it requires you to have an unlimited supply of sandpaper to continue be able to sand and move forward and that is where young lawyers need to concentrate most. Make a plan about how you're going to get files and make a plan. Don't tell me about your business and what you do. Tell me about how you're going to secure your ongoing leads such that you'll survive long enough to see your beautiful plan into fruition. And you know that all too well, Avi, and that's the reality that I live every single day as well. Very true, very true that uh, in, in new clients are uh, the lifeblood of the business. And, uh, you know, hopefully we don't retire by the time our sculpture becomes perfect. Hopefully it's as soon as possible and then we can, you know, work with that beautiful sculpture, sculpture in place. I, I like that analogy. But uh, just going a bit deeper here, you have any further uh, tips or wisdom? I mean, I just look at you and I think I want to do what you do. You have a, a Facebook group of almost 10,000 people and you continue to educate. And again, I, I emulate uh, your, your path in many ways. But over and above that, do you have any comments about how young lawyers could and should market? Sure. So um, let me... Let, let's let's go let's go into let's go so first off i'm on a podcast that you're that you're talking about and i love that angle i mean i understand you're doing it out of love and i understand it gives you the opportunity as well to speak with people that you admire and everything else and all of that is well and good but from a bit and, and it should always be more than just business you need to love what you do and i can tell you do and i know you do but the truth is, this is your lead. This is how you are building up your brand as much as anything else. This is the angle you've chosen to attack. Um, I'm going to give someone free advice. I'm not going to do this. This isn't for me, but I'm going to do a branding exercise right here. And I'm going to show you something that no lawyer has done yet on the street. So any of you that are listening, please feel free to take this. I believe a young lawyer that does this will be successful in no time if you take this idea and go for it. But that's I'm, why I'm we here. love you and that's why thinking, we have you here, Moshe. I, I was thinking actually of giving this idea to a specific lawyer, but I'm going to give it to the podcast. Just I'm going to throw it out there. And then feel free, guys, take it, run with it, and have fun. The idea behind branding, and perhaps we can, we can go into this. The idea behind branding is to establish yourself as unique in the marketplace, distinct. And the problem, and we should recognize this, the problem that sole practitioner lawyers have is that we are not unique. At least we're not perceived as unique. I'm very well aware of the difference between a good real estate lawyer and a bad real estate lawyer. And truthfully, so are my clients in one out of every 40 deals where I need to fight on their behalf. They're like, damn, that was a good real estate lawyer. He knows his stuff and there it is. But you know what happens with the 39 others, the ones who didn't have a fight, who were just there for the transaction? They'll look at me as no different and they'll say, well, he was a bit more expensive um, than others. And that's gonna be the sole criteria. We are in a commodity, perceived commoditized field. And recognizing that is important because if your brand is going to be, I do real estate, then you're playing into the very commoditization that is not going to allow for any of your marketing efforts to translate, right? It's like, oh, I love real estate. Let me buy you a home or what? Anyone can do that. There's nothing, there's nothing, make your house a home or what? Oh, who cares? This, this is not branding. This is not talking about anything special you're doing. And that is as applicable to Avi or myself or any other real estate lawyer out there. And thus you haven't broken free of the problem of perceived commoditization. Branding is your way of doing it. So I'm going to give you a suggestion I thought about last night and I was laughing on my bed and I said, who can I give this to? I'm giving it to the podcast. Nice. If a lawyer were to go ahead and advertise themselves, the first thing that they need to do is find the quality that they want other people to experience and examine. 
And if you think about it from a lawyer's perspective, there are certain qualities that can bring about a differential experience in the commoditized world. One is customer service. Hey, we do tremendous customer service, there we go. Um, uh, still others might choose to do, I don't know, wealth marketing or, uh, you know, or we come to you or like all that is customer service. But the other thing that lawyers are known for, and I think is really underplayed, particularly given that lawyers don't really advertise very well out there, particularly real estate lawyers, is negotiation. And um, whether you're a real estate agent or whether you're a real estate lawyer, Negotiation specialists in real estate is not something that is very much um, recognized. There's no, if I think about our industry, I don't think of anyone who's actually advertising themselves as like a negotiation specialist. Now, there's two ways. Let's just go down this path for a second. There's two different ways of advertising yourself as a negotiation specialist. One is to say legalclosings.ca negotiation specialists. That has all the efficacy of like a wet noodle. It's just a bunch of words. It means nothing. It might sound good on a, on a plaque, but there's nothing about that that is branded and makes you different. Yes, you're choosing to harp on an attribute that a lot of people are not harping on, and that's great from a, from a Gmail, uh, from a Google perspective, from a Facebook perspective and everything else, negotiation specialists, yada, 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 great. But that is not going to imprint itself into people's mind. What will imprint itself into people's mind is when they're driving down the Allen and they see your advertisement. And instead of just saying legalclosing.ca negotiation specialist, it has a picture of you as a realist, as a lawyer dressed up in a suit with a baseball bat, hovering over the person who you've just hit with that baseball bat who's currently on the ground with the word negotiation specialist, real estate negotiators. Why? So what, and, and, and there's a whole series of ads that you're gonna put out that basically have you chasing after people with a pitchfork and, and whatever it is, why? Because people want lawyers who will fight for them. People want to feel that they have a strong arm in their corner, they're paying money, they want value for that money. What's value? Value could be customer service or it could be negotiation specialist. But more importantly, it's funny, it's, it has an edge. It's not something that you look at and that says like on a baseball, like, you know, like on a, on, a, on a park bench, have faith with faith or whatever. That's just, that you're gonna forget that in three seconds. It is something that is hysterical. You're gonna point to your wife and you're gonna say, look at that, that's hysterical. And then you're gonna look for the next ad that has your, the lawyer chasing this person and doing whatever it is. And it is funny but it speaks to the truth you're trying to get out. I am a negotiation specialist, I'm an expert, I will slam these people down. And suddenly you'll start seeing your phone ring because your brand is now associated not with real estate, not with real estate law we care about. No, it's not about that. It's suddenly we have an attribute that other people do not in this commoditized field. Speak to me. Hmm. That is branding. Now. If you thought what I said was interesting here, keep in mind, you're hearing this from a lawyer who doesn't do branding. Well, I do do branding, but I'm not a branding specialist in the way that others are. There are any number of people whose job it is to do branding. And if you're wondering how you can actually hit your leads instead of you going ahead and establishing your website and finding your name, your three dots, and God knows what in your byline, go through a branding exercise, figure out who you are, Figure out the attributes you want to actually expel. Figure out the marketing scheme. Put it all together and then start into your website and how you're going to present yourself. Because marketing is a fundamental component of the lead generation. The lead generation and the conversion and the conversion is critical to allowing for the ongoing supply of files, which gives you the sandpaper that you need to smooth down the block, which allows you to eventually make something of value. Mm -hmm. That is what I would suggest. Brilliant, I like it. Uh, somewhat related, but uh, you know, it could be from a marketing angle or a substantive angle, is the idea of specialization. Now, I do real estate and estates. You are a guy who is residential real estate, and that is very clear. I'm sure that helps marketing in many ways, but 
maybe you can talk about the pros and cons, benefits, advantages, and disadvantages of specializing. And then, I mean, disadvantages, you have to refer out all the files that come to you for wills. And I thank you, you send some to me. But what's really the advantage or disadvantage there of, of specializing versus being having multiple areas? Well, eventually, everyone becomes a specialist, uh, or they are not successful. Um, Eventually, and, and that doesn't mean you can't specialize in more than one area, but eventually you specialize. Look, the sad truth in life is that we get old and then we die. And as we get old, I'm, I'm, I'm 45 years old. I, I had to remember what my age was actually there. That shows you how old I am. I'm 45 years old. I remember when I was 20. I remember how my brain functioned. I remember the neurons firing. I was able to take on anything. Now, do you know how I compete with someone who has that 20-year-old head? Experience. Experience is simply the ability to continue to compete in the space against 20-year-olds properly by using shortcuts, which are pretty much automation. And that's the way human beings pretty much do everything, right? Mm -hmm. The reason that I'm able to drive better than someone who is 16 and is on the road is because I've automated so many of the processes in my head so that when I'm turning right, I do 17 things without even knowing that I'm doing them. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I'm able to be very successful. And if you want to hire me as your driver, I'll probably be a more successful driver than someone who's starting out at 16, even though that 16 year old has a better head, has better firing neurons, and is more actively alert at all times and trying harder, right? That's the benefit of experience, automation. Mm -hmm. The benefit of specialization is ensuring that your experience can continue for a long period of time as you come across the vicissitudes and problems of age. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you're 65 years old, you just don't have the head to compete head to head against the 20 year old. You don't. You do have the experience and your experience will route effort every single time. Specialization allows us to continue to earn our incomes long into the future and is highly suggested. Yeah. But more, if you're successful in what you're doing, then really referring out files shouldn't matter to you at all. I'm, I'm busier than I can be. I have more files than I need. The reason you get files, the reason I, the reason I give files to legal review, the reason I, I, I throw files off all the time is because I have too many to deal with to begin with. And that sounds like a great problem to have, and it's born again of 20 years worth of experience, uh, but it's because of the specialization that I'm in that position. And as a result, it is not a problem to do if you've properly specialized and developed your expertise. Mm -hmm. Something on a more personal level, but also connected to this, is the idea of drive. You've gone through at least a couple of failures you've, failures you've, you've mentioned, and also bringing in new clients every month, new blood, so to speak. It takes a lot of personal motivation and drive to keep it going, to keep accelerating and increasing in your practice and your productivity. Any personal tips about uh, drive and motivation as a lawyer? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm speaking to someone who's a father, uh, and I am a father. And there's no better motivation than when you become a father or a mother or a parent uh, because you cease to work for yourself. I mean, my work is not, a, look, <laughs> it's all well and good that we're all practicing law, but what I'm doing is I'm earning a living for my family and there is no better motivator than that. So to be clear, if you are having these questions and say, how do I motivate myself? And you haven't been, a, and you're not a parent yet because you're in your twenties, just be aware there is a motivating kick that will come into your life unlike anything you've ever felt. And that motivation it drives many, many of us, no question. Mm -hmm. There's also the drive to be relevant. You know, like, and this is, this is just pure pathos, I guess. This is, this is pure ego and, and, and the like. But, you know, you don't have very long on this planet. There's eight billion of us. And marking your existence within the timeline that presents itself and within this universe is fleeting at best. Um, and how do you do it? Well, I don't know about you, but I often think like legacy, like who am I? What am I doing? How are my kids going to see me? Um, how does the profession see me? Th this matters. Uh, it's not, it's not 
just theoretical. It's, it's, it's something that, that in a larger sense motivates you. And then on the individual level, to be very frank, after you become good at things, there's a lot of money in doing these things right. Like I don't want to pretend that I'm not in this for the money. There is a ton of money in doing law right. Don't let anyone tell you there isn't. There is. You have to understand your costs. You have to understand your setups and everything else. But boy, is it a good life once you get started and get rolling. So there is something to the idea, and this is true, where there is immediate compensation for your struggles. I mean, it's unlike a job insofar as eating what you kill means eating immediately after you kill. And so when you go through a 15-file day and you're able to take the net of 15 files home with you that night, that is a huge incentive to those people who are motivated by things like money. I happen to be motivated by money. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be shy about it. It motivates me. It drives me. And then last, there's a love of what you do. Um, I really do love the education. I do love helping people. I love building businesses. I love coming up with ideas. I love having, and this is this for me is the big one, I love having a stable source of revenue so I can explore other ideas, whether failures or not. When I do my box on the, uh, it failed. Okay, fine, but I'm still here. And I'm going to do, I'm doing the next business now because I have a stable income stream. And that for me is a beautiful aspect of a sole practitionership mm -hmm. if it's spinning cash. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those things are motivating factors. Amazing. I mean, there's a saying that a good leader creates followers and a great leader creates leaders. And I think you're you're a great leader because you have many, uh, you've created many leaders, uh, other such successful lawyers. And we've even had a discussion about the philosophy of hiring staff. I just hired my first staff. I'm in a growth mode. And I, again, emulated you and your model. So you know, sole practitioners, I think, need to hire eventually to grow. That's really the way to get out of your own uh, drowning swimming pool. You have to be able to rely on other people as well. Talk about the philosophy of hiring and what you expect in your staff, because I found that quite revolutionary. Sure. Well, I hope I'm answering your question directly in this. But first off, I see staff as critical to success. Building any business, whether it's a sole practitionership or not, requires building something bigger than yourself. And by definition, you cannot build something bigger than yourself if you have no staff, right? right. Because it's entirely reliant on you. And the moment you die, it's done. Um, this is not true of businesses that are able to routinize and uh, really break down the process of what they do into individualized components. Staffing needs, so the first staff and the second staff and the third staff, these are critical staff because they do a couple of things. Firstly, they establish culture. Culture is not something the sole practitioner needs to worry about. Culture is whatever it is you say it is when you wake up in the morning. And if you feel bad, the culture of the firm is rotten that day. And if you feel great, then the culture of the firm is just the best place in the world to work. That's the definition of a sole practitioner. When a sole practitioner brings in another staff, it doesn't change too much. Because if you think about it, you really have like the sun. And what you're talking about is you're bringing in like a small little moon. And the vicissitudes and the orbit that is caused by the moon doesn't really affect the gravitational pull of the sun. You're still the center of the world. And if you want someone to cheer up, you tell them to cheer up, you tell them to buck up, you tell them to do whatever it is. Uh, and if they don't improve, no problem. You just get rid of the moon and buy, buy a different moon. Um, this is very different than long-term staff, senior staff, and staff that eventually become more than one. Because the moment you have more than one staff, there is a culture. There's a dynamic that works in. The dynamic exists as between the two staff, and it exists as between yourself and the individual staffs. And there's a dynamic that exists between yourself and both staff collectively as staff. And when you have three, it becomes more complex and so on and so forth. And it's critical as you hire your staff that you inculcate a culture 
that is respectful and open. And when I say open, I think I should just elaborate on that. Open means open to, um, open to inquiry and dialogue and mistakes. Everyone's gonna make mistakes, but people need to feel that they're in a supportive environment where mistakes are not gonna be punished, but rather gonna be corrected. Where they feel that their future is, where they have a real future at the firm, where they feel that there's a trajectory. And all of these things are things you need to build into the staff. Mm-hmm. My model is actually at this point is very simple. Only hire, and I'll just share mine, and uh, I'm starting something very small with my, I didn't want to actually grow my law firm, but now I have um, several staff and, um, you know, then there's a bookkeeper and a bunch of other things as well. And so we're, we're actually now becoming a bit of a substantive team. We have, you know, about four or five people. Um, and so the real question is, all right, well, how do you grow this culture? And the first thing I do is I pay my staff exceptionally well. Now, this doesn't need to be what you do. I'm not saying emulate this, but I pay them exceptionally well. Way, way, way higher than scale. Well, what I was getting at more, sorry to interrupt you, was that you pay uh, per production. It's not just that set fat salary. It's they have to approve. So that's really what I, I like about it is that you make them produce in order to earn that fat salary. I do. Well, I was going to get to that. Now, that's exactly where I was going. So I pay them very, very well, but I pay them on a profile basis. Now, you could ask yourself, well, why do you pay them on a profile basis? And the reason I pay them on a profile basis more than anything else has to do with firm culture, exactly what we were just talking about. Because you see, it works like this. Real estate, residential real estate has very busy months and then not so busy months. May 31st is hell on earth and it flows into June and July. And that is three months of unmitigated hell when staff want to go ahead and go and party and because you know sometimes you have young staff or whatever it is or just take some time off and they've been cooped in all winter and everything else now if you are paying your staff a salary then all and let's say you've chosen sixty thousand dollars to pay your clerk hypothetically fifty thousand dollars so you're starting out let's say forty five thousand dollars to pay your clerk your clerk is going to take on 30 files and when you give them 35 files they're going to groan when you give them 40 files, they're going to say, oh, God, now, by the way, you should never really be overloading your clerks. But overload's going to happen. Me saying you should never overload your clerk doesn't accord with the reality of a real estate practice. Overload will happen, even if you plan out. Why? Well, because there are these massive spikes in real estate volume on certain days. And all firms kind of experience those spikes and go crazy with it. Well, that in a salaried firm creates discord. It creates hardship. Negative staff may very well look at experiences like that and start talking badly, go, oh, this firm, like it's just giving me so much work. I'm overworked, it's destroying me. But what if you paid your files, your clerks on a per file basis? And suddenly, in the same way that real estate lawyers really financially like May 31st, What if your clerks really liked 31st? What if suddenly the volumes did not become something which caused people to complain, but rather caused them to buckle down and get cracking? Well, it so happens that the people I hire are hungry for, they're hungry for funds. Obviously that's just part of life. We're, We're all like that. But they also appreciate the fact that with hard work comes reward, direct, immediate. And I will tell you as well that the way I pay my clerks is not monthly or weekly or biweekly. I pay them hourly. What I mean by that is this. When they finish a file and report, i.e. transfer, right over to them right away. When they report to the clients, they provide me with an invoice and I pay that invoice immediately. Why? Because every single file that they are closing has immediate reward. We aren't much different than Pavlov and his dogs. There is salivation and a bell that rings. And I'm talking about for me as much as clerks. I'm not talking about employees. 
this is humanity. It matters to me that I'm getting paid at the end of the day. And if it matters to me, why would it not matter to my clerks? Why would it not matter to my staff? And thus they are paid at the end of the day. So it's not only that I pay on a per file basis, but I pay immediately on a per file basis. And I pay a lot on a per file basis. Why? So that they are in this. So that when they have six files that day and they're exhausted and they've gone through hell and they can't believe that they made it through, they have a bright point at the end of the day that caps it off where they suddenly see this money hit their account and they're like, oh my God, and they can pay for whatever it is that they want. And they know it's directly tied to that hard work. There is a psychology to this that makes a lot of sense. So that is the system that I currently have. My clerks love it. And it means that I have been able to hire what I believe to be the best clerks in the industry. Um, and it means that I don't need to worry about my quality uh, holding me up. Uh, when you're building a firm, and I'm just going to mention this one last thing, sorry, Abby, but, but for quality purposes, you should always be building a firm, whatever process you're putting in place that avoids in MBA, there's this, this operational concept called a bullwhip effect. And the bullwhip, and I think we mentioned this over, over lunch to you, Abby, but the bullwhip effect is the idea that minor variations at the beginning of the process translate as like a whip into large scale variations further on. If you have bad performing staff, then those might, that what may seem like minor variation, a problem here, a problem there, I forgot to put across this T. Well, suddenly if the banks start writing you back as a residential lawyer and say, hey, you forgot to cross this T, please file an amendment. Well, okay, easily done. What happens if that happens over and over and over and over again? Suddenly a good portion of your time is being taken up because you didn't have competent staff in the first place. Competence is incredibly important and com compensating people um, is a really good way of uh, properly, compensating people properly is a really good way of ensuring that you minimize the bullwhip effect, which is ultimately the, pro the purpose behind every structured business. Mm -hmm. I love it. I've, I've learned so much from that attitude. Not many bosses or employers come with that attitude when you're, again, going to empower the staff and give them a piece of the a piece of the game, piece of the action. I think it really helps, and I've adopted that approach. So thank you again for sharing that with me. Now, I mean, uh, to shift gears a little bit, uh, we could do a whole podcast about this next question, but I'd like to, if you can, limit it to uh, a few minutes because we've already uh, used up a lot of our time. Yes, try, try, try. No, you're, you're a great guest. You're, you're talking a, a lot and that's that's great out of a guest. But let's try and limit this one. Maybe we'll have a follow-up uh, discussion with uh, more about it. But what I want to know is a few horror stories that come to mind. You know, in real estate, everyone has horror stories, disasters, for some reason, a transaction closing or not closing or whatever it is. Any uh, sore thumbs that stick out to you? And again, let's try keep it abbreviated. Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me tell you about a screw up that wasn't my fault. And then I'll tell you about a screw up that was okay. a screw up that wasn't my fault. Um, my favorite personal story is that I uh, wired money to a sorry, I didn't wire this is before the days of wire, I couriered 785,000 in certified funds to National Bank, which was two blocks away from my office. And FedEx lost the certified check in a conveyor belt in Montreal, and they were never able to find it again. And as a result, $785,000 in cash went missing. And when I called up FedEx, they offered me $100 in compensatory payment for my troubles. <laughs> the way we got around that was through the beauty that is insurance. Um, you wanna talk about a screw up? I'll tell you about a screw up, uh, screw up that is my fault. Uh, and actually, it speaks really to the problems that people are going to have. I once let land merge. For those of you who aren't real estate lawyers, if in fact you have two parcels of abutting pieces of land, and in fact they're owned by the same party, uh, land merges. Um, and the reason I let land merge was um, not because I was unaware of land merger, but rather because when you run a large firm, this happened at Access Law, um, process becomes everything. Process, 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 process. And without going into too much detail, even though we had set up a process, the process failed. And it failed because it wasn't set up properly, which happens all the time. And uh, accordingly, um, it resulted in a lawsuit. 
Uh, by the way, everyone is sued in life. Uh, this is a truism in the world. So that's not to say that you should want to be sued, but generally people get sued in life. And unlike divorce, which is very public, people seem to find shame in saying that they've been sued. And I don't really quite understand that. It's, it's, it happens, it happens to people. This is, this is part of life. Um, so the way we recovered, I recovered in this instance through insurance. It wasn't a major piece of merger. It wasn't a big thing. Um, but at the end of the day, um, this was some, a failure born of my clerks. Uh, my clerks did not, they, they followed the process, but I had devised the wrong process for this particular way that land merged. And as a result, <clears throat> particularly when I was running a larger firm, uh, the lesson was, you know, slow down and make sure that these processes um, that we have in place for what could be substantive problems are examined on a annual basis and make sure that the forms that we're asking people to fill out uh, are current and up to date because that led to some of the problems that we had. And I'm just pointing it out because everyone gets into trouble. It's not a question of whether you're going to get into trouble. You will. The question is how you deal with that trouble when it rears its ugly head and you know how you fix so that it doesn't happen in the future. Mm, that's a nice way of dealing with it and uh, happy it all worked out at the end. Two, two last questions for you. There's the second last one is, do you have any favorite books that you like and recommend or live by? I, I'm, um, I'm reading a great book right now on Keynes. Um, just one second, I'll just quickly Reading right now. Right now, I, I'm loving this book. It's The Price of Peace, uh, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, and about the structure of World War II and the global financial system, which I'm really enjoying. But the book that, if I have to think back to the book that kind of keeps me going that I've thought about for 20 years, Sorry about that. I have, a, I have a dog who's decided that he's going to bark a bit. He wants to join the podcast. Yes, indeed. If I, if I have to think of a book that um, really kind of defined me, that I've thought about, that I've chewed over for many, many years, I would say Wisdom of the Crowds by James Sirwecki. Mm -hmm. um, there is the idea, I'll just, I'll entice you to read this because it's brilliant. Um, if you put a bunch of jelly beans on a counter and turn to someone and say, how many jelly beans are there? Um, they can try to do all sorts of mathematical analysis, but truthfully, the best way of actually quickly figuring out how many jelly beans are in that jar is by turning to a class of people of 100 people or more, a diverse group of people, and saying, how many jelly beans are here? And then they answer and they say, well, here everyone gives an answer. You tally up that answer and divide by the number of people, and you will be right within about one degree. Wow. Uh, and the reason for that, and the interesting part of that is, well, individually, we don't know the answer, but collectively, we all do. There's wisdom in the crowd so long as you aggregate it properly. And the reason, by the way, if you're wondering why that works, it's because everyone's answer is the correct answer with a degree of error, right? And if you assemble enough people, the degrees of error cancel themselves out, leaving only the right answer. And you wouldn't think it works, but it works tremendously well. The wisdom of the crowds, it's brilliant when you actually learn how to think about that. And, and, and that's, it's, to some degree, it's basic statistics. But again, being lawyers, we're never forced to take statistics. So it's actually a really good thing to kind of contemplate and think about. Very cool. Thanks for that suggestion. And when you mention the wisdom of the crowds, I think of the Facebook groups that you got all these hundreds of lawyers or, or realtors, real estate professionals. There's multiple different groups also, but where you can post a question and get a hundred different lawyers looking and answering and providing the input, it really puts us in all a better position. So that's cool. that's that's my comment about that. Last question I'll, I'll leave you with is just a general bit of advice to law students. Let's say it's the last day of your Ryerson class or you know, you're talking to a bunch of young lawyers, what uh, uh, wise words you want to leave us with? Yes, I will. Um, it is very normal to feel that your life and your career is falling apart three or four years out from law school. Um, it is an incredibly normal part of the process. It takes most people, not saying everyone, this is obviously just generalized advice, it takes most people five years before they actually establish direction 
and 10 years before they become good at what they do. And being lost early in your career is part of that process. So many people I speak to are lost. I remember when I was lost, chalk it up and understand that that is part of the process and it will make that feeling of being lost more palpable, more contextualized, and something that you can more readily deal with. And that would be my best suggestion to you as you kind of approach the world. Thank you, Moshe. You are a great friend. You are a great lawyer, a great mentor, and you should keep it up. I look forward to many more uh, discussions with you and uh, continued our continued friendship. I do appreciate that, Avi, and I would just mention as a final note that I do watch your podcasts and I enjoy them tremendously. I love the people you take on, and I, I feel very honored to actually be part of the esteemed lineup that you've actually been able to round up. Thank you. You're actually the youngest guest by far, but uh, I respect you so much that I thought I'd get you in. I do appreciate that. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you, Moshe.